Well, remember where we are. We're in the area of the ministry of God restoring his original intention. Remember, our salvation is about God restoring his intention. It's not about us. We are his intention, so it's about him through us as we are his instruments. So we're talking about God restoring his intention. So we've looked at the life of Jesus. You know, the great what? Incarnation begins when? In Jesus' conception in the Virgin Mary. Remember that? And so the theology of that is what? Where's the theological statement of the conception? John 1, 14. Now you're going to have to look that up. That's all there is to it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You remember that. And so we're looking at the purpose of God because we already know about Genesis. And we already know that God has created all things for one purpose. So that He would share and declare the glory of himself in and through and with his people whom he has known before the foundation of the world and is in his own mind and intention bringing it to pass with the first words of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And stating the purpose in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then beginning to declare how that will be worked out in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply, remember, and subdue and rule, remember those terms. And then going to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, work and keep the garden which we talked about in another lesson, which means guard the place of God and the people of God, the work of God. Guard it and develop it. Guard it and develop it. Work and keep. Those are the same words that are used in Numbers. I think it's seven. Wow, how do you like that? I think it's Numbers 7 verses 6 and 7, somewhere where God gives that same instruction to the Levites. So we've moved from the conception of Jesus all the way now to the ascension. Now, which aspect of the ministry of the life of Jesus is the most important aspect? None of them individually, all of them what? Comprehensively, correct? Do, are we beginning to get this? Which work aspect of the life of Jesus is the most important. None individually, all collectively or comprehensively. And so last week, remember, we, I think, ended, I forgot now what we ended with last week, but today we start looking at the three roles that Jesus is going to fulfill in carrying out God's eternal purpose. And that's the role of king, the role of prophet, and the role of priest, which he, when he is born into the world, he ministers those three roles, and he ministers in those three roles. He ministers the three roles and in those three roles 
to bring about the great work of the cross. And so he comes in humility and in weakness, and he lives out the role of king, thus exemplifying the Father's role in the Trinity. He lives out the role of prophet, thus exemplifying what? The Spirit's work in the Trinity. And then he lives out the role of priest, thus exemplifying and manifesting his own personal role as the Son of God. And so everything about everything, everything about everything that is created is a Trinitarian work, absolutely involving the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but according to distinctive yet not separate, distinctive yet not separate roles, so that in the role of one is contained the role of the other two. And so Jesus comes as the Redeemer, and he takes the lead in that, but yet even in that role, the Father and the Holy Spirit are involved. And that applies to the Father's will, and that applies to the Holy Spirit's work. Do we see that? And so we have seen that Jesus ascended. Why? To sit on the throne of God at the right hand of the Father. Why does Jesus ascend? Because he is now exalted. He is now risen. He's now the man in power. He's no longer in humiliation, having taken on our weakness, but now he's the man in power. And he goes to the throne in order to now implement God's eternal plan, which he has now, which he has purchased in his incarnational life and death. So now he's going to implement that which he has purchased, which we see in the resurrection as God's statement that this is now my son, and what he has done is my work, is completed, is fulfilled, I accept it, and now the ascension is now the work of God in his son, having given the son the authority to now implement the father's plan that, he pro that the son purchased in his earthly ministry. So why was this necessary? Why is this resurrection, I'm sorry, this ascension necessary for our salvation? The Son had to come into the world to perform the work of the Father, the work the Father had given him, remember? Why does Jesus come into the world? To save sinners, correct? Why does Jesus come into the world? To be our Redeemer, correct? But why does he do that? Because it's the work of the Father. Everything that Jesus does is as a result of working the work of the Father. And we talked about that before. So that is in Christ, God is reclaiming his rightful rule over the cosmos and in his captured people. God sends his Son into the world to reclaim his rightful rule in and over the cosmos and in and over his people. I'm trying not to jump ahead. My thoughts are going ahead, and I want to say something, but I think I'm going to say it later on. So, in giving all authority to Jesus, remember, where does Jesus say all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me? Where is that? Matthew chapter what? 28 verse 18. You're right. All authority. In giving all authority to Jesus, in other words, the Son of God in the humanity of Jesus Christ has now done the full work of the Father perfectly. 
as a result of that, the Son of God in the humanity of Jesus has now earned, earned the right to be given all authority. He has earned it through His obedience to be given all authority. And then why? In giving all authority to Jesus, God is fulfilling His promise. Remember in one of these great messianic promises in Psalm 2, verses 7 to 8. It may be in your notes. I don't remember what's in your notes. And here's what it says. I will tell of the decree of Yahweh. Now, someone speaking here. There's a first person, remember? First person nominative singular, I. You, you remember that in English, I? I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. Okay, so we have someone saying, Yahweh said to me. Now, who is Yahweh? The God of glory, right? The God of the Old Testament. The translation is the Lord, but it's the word Yahweh. So I typically would rather say Yahweh. Someone is saying this, I'm going to tell the decree of Yahweh. And he said to me, you are my son. Now remember, that is also said to Jesus at the baptism in Matthew 3.17 or Luke 3.22. And remember this, that the Lord calls Solomon Jedidiah in first, 2 Samuel 12.25, which means beloved. And so, I will tell a decree. What is the decree of Yahweh? He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And so, as a result of his perfect obedience, Jesus earns the right to inherit the nations. He earns the right to inherit the nations. Now, in gathering God's people together, sorry, let me say it this way. In this gathering, this nation, getting all the nations together, the glory of God's rule over his creation and his people are intended, and Adam will be reestablished. Why did God create Adam and Eve? He created them in order that in these people and through these people, a nation will come forth. The world would be filled with people. Multiply and be fruitful. For what purpose? So that the entire world may be filled with the glory of God as he rules over his people and in his people and through his people. And in order to exemplify this, God gives to Adam the right to rule. He says, Adam, you will be my ruling agent upon the earth. And as you rule in obedience, obedience is the key. As you rule in obedience, I am going to bless you. I'm going to bless your wife. And I'm going to bless your offspring so that the whole world will be filled with my glory, the glory of my rule. But Adam, what? Re deliberately rejects God's rule. Remember that? And he bows to Satan's temptation. Remember the verse in Genesis 3, 6. What does the last three words in Genesis 3, 6 say? And he, who? Adam ate. In eating of the fruit, Adam who is God's representative ruler upon the earth. He is God's king upon the earth, if you would. And Satan comes 
And Satan says, don't obey God, obey me. Isn't it what he's saying effectively? <clears throat> Isn't every temptation to sin to say, obey me? Isn't that what sin is all about? Reject God, Murphy. Obey me. Isn't that the temptation? Reject God. Obey me. That's every temptation, no matter what it is, no matter why it is. Well, I'm just so angry because he said that to me. It doesn't matter why. I react this way because of the way I was dealt. It doesn't matter why. Every temptation, every temptation is a temptation of Satan through our flesh to say, reject God's rule. Reject God as God. Reject God's sovereignty over you and submit to me. Now, we may not like that, but that's absolutely the fact. And so when Adam says yes to Satan, when he says yes to Satan, what happens? A great cataclysmic change occurs. Not only does sin come into the world and the entire cosmos and every human being becomes corrupted by sin and polluted by sin, But something worse happens. In Adam, God is ruler over the earth. Do you, do you hear that? Do, do we get that? In Adam and through Adam, God rules the earth. Correct? He's ruling through this man whom he has given his authority, to whom he has given his authority. You go out and you do this. So Adam could literally say, all authority over the earth has been given to me. Do you hear the echoes of another man? So when the Lord says to Adam, be fruitful and multiply, and he says, subdue and rule, remember in Genesis 1.28, he's given Adam all authority. And so Adam is God's representative ruler. But when Satan comes along and he says, Adam, Eve, do something different than God has said. Because in Genesis 2.17, the Lord says, you shall not eat of that fruit, for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Remember that? And so when Adam rejects that, He's not only rejecting God's rule, but he is bowing himself down and surrendering his rightful rule and giving it over to Satan. And as a result of that, what does 2 Corinthians 4.4 call Satan? 2 Corinthians 4.4, what? the God of this world. How does Satan become the God of this world? This usurper, this interloper, this deceiver. How does he become the God of this world? Because the king of this world who has been given by God all authority to rule over this world by submitting to Satan's temptation literally bows down to Satan and hands over Adam hands his rulership, his mantle of ruling to Satan. So do you see how Satan becomes the God of this world? As a result, Satan becomes the God of this world so that all humanity, 
has been captured by Satan to do his will rather than the benevolent will of the, God, uh, of the Creator. And by the way, 2 Timothy 2.26 is extremely important. How many of you have heard discussions about we have free will? We have free will to, you know, decide if we want to be following God. You've heard of free will. We're free moral agents. How many of you have heard this? We all have free will. You've heard this. What does 2 Timothy 2.26 tell us? What does it say? That all humanity has been captured by Satan to do what? His will. Anthony, your will before Christ was not an independent free will. It was a will that was captured by Satan, and the only choice you have was a choice to do Satan's will. Do, do we see the verse? Do you see the verse? So there's no such thing as Satan wanting you to receive Christ. Can you agree with that, Andy? Do we agree that Satan doesn't want you to be saved? Can you agree to that, Joey? Jody? Can anybody disagree with that, that Satan doesn't want us to be saved? So if we are bound and locked in and captured to do His will, then how is it that some people say, if we will decide to follow Jesus, then He will save us? Because we had the ability and the will to call on Jesus in order to be saved. No. Your captivity as to your will must be broken by the power of the Holy Spirit so that then you have been freed as to your will to receive Christ, which you will do. Can you say amen? You see, this salvation of ours, it's not a matter of what we had decided. Because if I decide for Jesus and then he saves me, that means that maybe during my life I can decide against Jesus and I may lose it. Let me tell you something, folks. God saves us. And we receive that salvation by faith. What verse was that? Ephesians 2.8. And we receive it by faith. And God keeps us saved by the mighty power that he raised up his own son in which he has given, which he has given to us by the Holy Spirit. Amen? God has done the greatest work in saving us. And he who has saved us, can he keep us saved? Can he keep you saved? Can he keep you saved? Yes. Yes. So, what is the result of humanity falling? Let me just read these verses. In verses 1, uh, Romans 1, 21 to 32. By the way, let me just make a comment in general. You know how I am. I make comments, Herman, all the time. And I hope to finish the lesson. And, and I, I don't want to blow your bubbles, but I really hope your bubble is blown. There is a great miscommunication when we, in general, hear my words carefully, when we, in general, say to people, Jesus loves you. Well, what's wrong with that? The Bible says that God loves his own. In John chapter 17, Jesus says, I don't pray for the world. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for what? 
those whom God has given me out of the world. You say, well, wow, what, what is that all about? That's about God's sovereign right to choose. And so when we present the gospel, we typically start off with the love of God and how great he is and wonderful he is. Won't you accept Jesus? And so when we read Romans, Romans is that great theological treatise about the fundamental issues of the gospel, isn't it? Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of God unto salvation of everyone believes it's Jew first and then look at for in it, in the, the uh, gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. He's quoting from, from Habakkuk 2.4. Then what does he do in 18? He begins a polemic, what? An attack. He starts off telling humanity how terrible they are. From Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20. Paul hammers, hammers, hammers the devastating, intensive, and extensive results of sin. Sin is intensively resulting in us and extensively resulting in us to a corruption. And so for the first three and a half chapters, Paul tells them how lost they are. Then beginning in verse 30, 21, verse chapter 3, he begins to talk about the gospel. So he doesn't start off, Jesus loves you. And all you have to do is say, yes, Jesus. He doesn't do that. He first must convict by the Spirit the soul of his listeners to their need for a Savior, not to their desire to have a sweet friend. Jesus is our Savior who was beaten and battered and destroyed so we could be restored to God so that as a result we become the friends of God, but not before. And so listen to this indictment. For although they, that means humanity, Although they knew God, by the way, look at that. There's no such thing as persons not knowing God. Every person born into the world, and you see this in Romans 1, 19 and 20, has a knowledge of God where? Inside of them. And then they look at the universe and they see his great, enormous power and his attributes. Remember that? It says that. And as a result of that, that should convince them. Oh, may I tell you a quick story I've told you before. Years ago in the old church, we were here Sunday night, and there was a, uh, a missionary, and I think it was from Venezuela. I can't remember what it was. But he, he and his group went back into the wooded area, you know, those, those um, uh, jungles that you, are so thick you can't even get through them almost. And they got to a tribe that had not seen white people. You know, these are Indian people. They never seen other than Indian people. And so they gathered the tribe through the translators and they started talking. The, the missionary said, I started preaching the gospel. And everybody's listening. And all of a sudden, I said the name of Jesus. And one Indian man jumped up and started yelling and screaming. Remember this? I've told you that. This was here in our church. I heard this. The man started yelling and screaming. And they went, oh, my word, what did I do? What is going on here? 
And finally, they, they calmed him down, and he went through the rest of the sermon. At the end, he talked to the man through the translator, and the man said this, for five years, I've been going out to the clearing and looking over to see the valley and looking up. And I said, I know you're there, but I want to know your name. Jesus. You see, God brings in all of his people. He doesn't miss one. Can you say amen? He doesn't miss one. There won't be a single open or neglected chair in heaven. Not one. And by the way, we're going to have to sit next to one another. <laughs> Can you imagine that, sitting close to one another in church? <laughs> so they knew God. No such thing as no, not knowing God. Everybody knows God. But they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. But they gave, they became fuel to, and their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, as I read this, see if there's any hint of innate ability in me to call upon God on my own. See if it gives us any ability in here to call upon God on my own. So they became futile in their thinking. Foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they become fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. I'm skipping some of the verses. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, Though they knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Is not that what we're seeing in a much greater way today, nowadays? The debasement and the foolishness and the darkness and the terrible sinfulness of man is not only being practiced, but now is being pushed upon everybody. Do you see the difference today? Now, that's the condition of fallen man. Therefore, for God's rule to be reestablished in his people, Jesus has to earn the right to be God's ruler over creation. One man was created who would rule God's creation in the name and the power of God. That man was given the authority to do that. That man surrendered that authority to Satan who became the God of this world as a result of capitulating to the temptation in order now to reestablish his rule and to regain his people. Another man must come to represent God's rule and to do it perfectly, obediently, perfectly, without sin so that he can take from Satan the rule of God's people and this earth from Satan back to God as a, right, as a result of his right of obedience. So now from his heavenly throne, Jesus will exercise in the ascension. We're talking about the ascension, remember. Now from his heavenly throne, Jesus will now exercise his royal rule over the creation <clears throat> by sending the Holy Spirit as the Father's divine agent to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And we'll talk about that next week. That's going to happen. In his earthly ministry, remember, Jesus entered the battlefield of this world to wage war against the usurper. You remember that? 
Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. You remember in Matthew 3, I'm sorry, Matthew, um, Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Do you remember that? And immediately coming up out of the water and God saying, "This, you are my son, you are my beloved son. The Holy Spirit drives, Mark says, the Holy Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. Or is it Luke? Whatever. He drives him into the wilderness to do what? To face the tempter, to face the usurper. There's a new man on earth as God's king and is going to face the usurper king. And the battle is going to be one battle, only one issue. Will this new king obey God or will he obey Satan? There's only one issue involved here, and there's always only one issue, obedience. The church makes too little of obedience today. Obedience. He goes out there to wage war in one category only. What is it? Will this man obey the will of God as revealed through his word? God told Adam, the word of God was spoken to Adam. This is what you do and this is what you don't do. And Adam disobeyed the revealed word of God. Now the word of God himself comes in the humanity of Christ and is now challenging Satan as to the rule and he will show that I am the man who will obey my father's word and thus establish my father's rule upon the world or reestablish it so in receiving the father's affirmation you remember you're my son Jesus confronts the deceiver in the wilderness and there are three areas of temptation in Matthew 4 verse 3 Jesus confronts the temptation for his own personal interests you're hungry. Do something for yourself. Is it wrong to do something for yourself? Yes or no? The answer is neither yes or no. The answer is it depends. Is it wrong to do something for yourself? Yes or no? It depends on what? What the Holy Spirit says. I can't tell you yes or no. Is it wrong to live in Orleans Parish? Yes or no? even with hiring, uh, uh, whatever. Is it wrong? It depends. Is it right and better to live in Jefferson Parish? Ah, yes or no? It could be sin to live in Jefferson Parish. It could be sin to live in Orleans Parish. Where, what is the determining factor here? The Holy Spirit's leading. Well, we're going to go out here because of this, that, and the other thing, and so on. Have you asked God? Because it may be for the natural reasons you are going to go out there and be devastated. In Genesis 14, and Lot, listen to how it says, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the plains of Jordan, and they were rich and green and well watered. He lifted up. He made the decision. He's going to go live in Jefferson. He's going to go live in Orleans. He's going to live. I'm going to do this job. I'm sending my children over here to school. That's a temptation. That's a temptation. To don't worry about what God says. You can decide on your own. God has given you understanding. He's given you intelligence. Use it. No, use it to listen. Go to God and ask and what? Listen and then obey God. That's how you use it, correct? Don't use it independent of God. In verse 7, to test the Father's faithfulness. Will God do what he said he will do? 
with all this difficulty and all the things in the world, is God still there? Will he do what he says to do? This is a temptation that we're faced with, that Jesus faced and overcame. And then the third one, verse 9, interest of the people. What we need to do as a church is to be about getting into society and doing good for people. We need to be involved in politics. We need to be involved in social change. We need to be involved in financial uh, issues. We need to be involved in et cetera, et cetera, for the good of the people. That's what the church needs to do. Is that God? And Satan said to Jesus, look at all these kingdoms. They belong to me. Jesus didn't say, Rose, oh, you don't, they're, they're my fathers, they're not yours. No, Jesus didn't. And if you will bow down to me, I will give them all to you. Think of all the good that you can do, all the social change. You can eliminate poverty. You can eliminate racism. You can eliminate ignorance. You can eliminate all that. Just bow to me. And Jesus said no because he had come to do the Father's work. Now, when the Father's work, when the Father's work is to be involved in these things, we are to do them. But we're not to do them because society needs them. We are here to do the Father's work. Can you say amen to that? Can you agree to that? Am I repudiating becoming involved with the society? Of course not. But what we're saying here, we become involved in the leading of the Holy Spirit. So that which we do then is empowered by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of presenting the gospel to these people so that they may be saved rather than to worry about their natural condition and they go to hell because we don't do the gospel. We're not here for the interest and the benefit of people. We are here for the interest and benefit of whom? Whom? Of God. You see, Jesus saying no to these things. And yet, groups and churches all over the place are saying yes to them. Some kind of way we read the Bible backward. So the essence of these three temptations was the same as the original temptation. In each temptation, Christ would be grasping to use his divine authority rather than humbling himself by submitting to the divine authority of the Spirit. Do you see it? Use your divine prerogative. And do something to show that you're God. Did you hear the temptation to Eve? Eat, why? Why doesn't God want you to eat? Because he knows that the day in which you eat, you will be like God, knowing what? Good and evil. Eve was tempted to, and she grasped and took. Jesus was tempted to grasp, and he didn't. And that's what Philippians says, Paul in Philippians in 2, chapter 2. Though he was in the form of God, did not grasp He did not grasp at divinity like Eve did, but he humbled himself and he says, I'm not here to grasp. I'm not here for my personal sake. I'm not here for the sake of humanity, essentially, essentially. I'm here for whose sake, Butch? My father's sake. My father's sake. Do you hear the difference in the way we typically think? Does this communicate to any of us 
how we've been thinking and how we typically act. So Jesus in John chapter 12, remember, we're getting close to the Lord's Supper. And he says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Who's the ruler of this world? Satan. Cast out from what? From his rule. Why can Jesus say that? Because in John 14, 30, he says, the ruler of this world cometh, but he has nothing in me. You see John 14, 30? He comes, but what? He comes against me, but what? He has nothing in me. What does that mean, nothing in me? There's no sin. There's no disobedience. He has nothing to accuse me of. He has no rightful ability to kill me. He's coming after me. But he has nothing in me. There's nothing in me with which Satan can accurately accuse me. Because remember, he's called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12.10, I think it is. Oh, yeah, I see it. No ground for accusation because Jesus is without sin, Hebrews 4.15. It's a good verse to remember. He's without sin. Satan's authority over humanity is on the basis of humanity's sin. But Jesus is the one man who is without sin. Therefore, Satan has no authority over the humanity of Christ. Correct? Do we see this? At the cross, Satan carries the sin, the disobedience of his people to the cross and pays the full price. What is that full price? Death. Genesis 2.17 God tells the first man, Adam, if you sin, you will die. And when he sins, everybody dies. Remember in Romans, Romans chapter 3, death passed to all because all sinned. I mean, Romans chapter 5. But there's another man on earth who's going to pay the full penalty of the first Adam, and he's going to pay that penalty at the cross. See, Satan has no ground of accusation. Hebrews 2.14, when Jesus' death for our sin is shown to disarm Satan, what happens at the cross? Through death, Christ destro <coughs> me, destroys the one who has a power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So what happened? How did that happen? Let's read Colossians 2.13 through 15. This is what was going on at the cross. And you, Paul says, the first 13 is the about us, and then 14 to 15, how did it happen? And you, who were dead in your sins and un uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. Now, what, what tense is that? Present, past, or ten, uh, future? God made alive. What tense is that? Past tense. Why are we saved? Because of the cross. Are we saved because we have faith? No. We're not saved because we have faith. Faith is not our works to be saved. We're saved because of the life and death, burial and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Correct? Do you understand that? The blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Faith is that gift of God giving me the desire and the ability to say, Yes, to receive it, 
It's not my work that causes me to merit it. I am receiving the merits, the good work of another man who saves me because of those good works. Do you see that? Sometimes Christians get faith back when we think it's something that we do as a work. It is our response to this saving grace of God in Christ. And how did we get it? It's not your own, but it is a what? Gift, lest any man should boast. So let's change our terminology. I found Jesus. Here's what our terminology is. Jesus found me and saved me. Where's the burden of the work? Jesus. If you put the burden of what I did, I received Christ. I prayed. I sought for him. Now, all that may be true, but where's the burden of it? God was doing this. And that was my response to the burden of God's work in me. Do you, do you understand this? Do we see it? So Colossians, you were dead. But God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us how many? I'm sorry, I can't hear. How many trespasses? How many? Romans 8, 1. There is therefore, there is therefore what? Now. No what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How did it do? Canceled the, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. That is our sin with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He set aside, sorry, he nailed all of our guilt to the cross. He nailed all of our issues to the cross. He nailed all of our old nature to the cross. In him, all of that was condemned, and he died, and it was paid for. And as a result, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. God did that in Christ. So at the cross, Jesus pays the price. And in the resurrection, Jesus returns. And in returning, he's like the general who went out into the wilderness and conquered all those crazy barbarians. You've seen TV shows. And he comes back into Rome, marching at the head of a great parade, and all the slaves are behind them in chains because of this conquering king, this general. And so in the resurrection, Jesus is declared as the conquering king. This is what he's done. And in the ascension, he will sit on his glorious throne and begin to apply all the good of his victory into his people to literally and experientially in a time frame begin to set us free, having purchased it at the cross and being declared as the conqueror in the resurrection. But without the ascension, we have nothing. So we cannot stop at the resurrection because if there were no ascension, we would never be saved. 
If there were no resurrection, we would never be saved. If there was no burial, we would never be saved. If there was no death, we would never be saved. If there was no perfect, obedient life, we would never be saved. If there was no conception, we would never be saved. So what's the most important part? All of it together. As a result, the victory of Jesus in overcoming the wrath of God and Satan's authority, we can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, having crowned Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords with all glory and honor, Jesus will now confer the blessings of his great inheritance upon his people. And he's going to do that as the divine prophet and as the divine priest. And we'll begin to talk about the prophetic work of Jesus next week. Thank you.